0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Aspiring Black Social Worker podcast. I am your host Shaw. I am a third year and final semester MSW student and this podcast is my landing ground. A place for me to process all the things I am learning in grad school and a space for me to discuss the random thoughts running through my mind. Thank you all for listening and following along. Please take a moment to subscribe rate, and review the podcast. Also, follow me on Instagram at AspiringBlackSocialWorker. So, we are back to our regular podcast flow. Thanks to everyone who listened to my three-part mini-series on toxic workplaces and abusive supervisors, You know what there weren't many of y'all listening (laughs) and maybe it's because of how I released them all at once because the first two episodes of the series had the lowest listenership of any of my episodes but then the last episode actually was like on par with my most of my other episodes so maybe it's because y'all saw the latest one and thought y'all I don't know but anyway I really thought about re-releasing the first two one by one and maybe I still will but those episodes were really for school related purposes and my GPA is still a 4.0 so I am good. This episode will be a little different and probably a little shorter because I have been on a break from school for almost a month at this point so I will have no this week in grad school segment But I did want to catch y'all up on what I've been doing over the break, especially since I have not released a podcast. (laughs) Y'all, I have been straight chilling. I have three daughters who are out of school right now. So I have really just been soaking up as much time as I can with them. My husband's been out a lot. So we've just been kind of just being a unit of people, just kind of spending some time together. My eight-year-old and I made up a board game, y'all. It was, um, we were bored one day. She came on, and said, what can we do? What can we do? And I was like, well, let's make a game. So somehow we made up a board game and it's really fun. Like, it's really fun and it's really like it can go by quick. So it doesn't, um, Children don't lose attention quickly, like in some board games, like Monopoly or something like that, where you might lose attention because it's taking up so much time. It's a really kind of quick board game. My husband had to draw it out for us because I cannot, for the life of me, draw a straight line, even with my, even with a ruler. It's just not in the cards for me. I like to blame it on being left-handed, but really, I just suck at it. I always have. Um... So it is what it is, <laughs> but we have spent a lot of time playing this game, um, playing other games as well, but this is kind of new for us. So we've been just enjoying that. I've also been reading. <clears throat> I'm not sure if I ever mentioned how much I really, really enjoy reading before on the podcast, but what I tend to do is on my breaks from school since for the last almost three years. I spend my breaks like catching up on reading that I would normally do. Um bef- like before I was in school. So I I spent a lot of time reading on my breaks, but this break I haven't read as much as I thought I would. Um probably because you know just the holiday season and doing everything with that. But I will um I'll tell you about what I've read so far. So I got two about two more weeks before I go back to school and have to start back on some academic reading so I still have a couple of weeks to try to read at least two or three books um but so far over the break I read a book by Jasmine Guillory called by the book I am a fan of hers like all of her books are like good light-hearted reading it's nothing heavy it's not gonna make you you know think about the difficult issues of the world today um, a lot of her books have like um couples who are like interracial or interethnic type couples, and I I appreciate that. Um, but it's more like a romantic comedy in book form, so I enjoy all of her books. So if you're looking for something that's not too heavy, um, look up Jasmine Guillory. I also read We're Gonna Need More Wine by Gabrielle Union. And you know, as much as I love Gabrielle Union, I am surprised it took me so long to read this book. She has another book, I think it's called, you know what I don't, I'm not going to presume what it's called, but I plan to read that one too. And it was really good as well. Um, So those are the only two books I've completed. And now I seem to be reading two books at once. So I started reading a book called DEI Deconstructed by Lily... Zhang, Z-H-E-N-G. And it's really good. It's all about diversity, equity, inclusion, and how to make it practical in the workplace, right? But it got interrupted because I have been on this waiting list for Michelle Obama's new book, The Light We Carry, um, at my library. So not really the physical library, but the My Libby app. I don't know if y'all use that, but I, I said to myself, this break, I'm reading for free. So none of these books I'm buying. I'm either, you know, reading for free. The DEI Deconstructed was actually a Christmas gift to me. Um, so when I, I was, been I've been waiting on this book by Michelle Obama to become available. And I've been in the line and it came available. So now I kind of stopped reading DEI Deconstructed to read um, The Light We Carry. Because you only get 14 days to read it on this app. So, I'm focused on that right now. Um, I also don't know. Like I said, I've been trying to read for free. So, I'm not sure if y'all know. But if you have Amazon Prime, you get a free book every month. It used to be two free books. But they, they got stingy and they're giving you one free book. But I'm still happy with a free book. It's a free book. They are pre-selected books. Um, like... I guess they have like people who pick the books, but they really have a good like diverse kind of selection. Like you can find like some memoirs, you can find some mysteries, you can find some thrillers, you can find some romance, you can find, you know, authors of, you know, various races and ethnicities. So it's a really good um, mix and I typically find some really good books to read from the list and I get to discover some new authors that I probably... Well, and no. And I really became obsessed with this one author. She writes like I don't know if you would call them thrillers or like psycho psychological, I don't know, but let me tell y'all her name and find it right fast because I really recommend her. And she does like a series. So, let's see. The um that I last read it. That's how much I read. Okay. Her name is Brianna Labuskes, L-A-B-U-S-K-E-S. And she has a series about a lady, I believe her name is Gretchen, who is like a sociopath. And she helps like detectives solve crimes that possibly other sociopaths or psychopaths um, commit so, it's just very interesting. So, I definitely recommend um, looking into that. Um, What else has been going on? Oh, yeah. So, for Christmas, my sister and my cousin threw a Christmas party for, like, our larger family. And it was a really great time because it's been a while since we've all gotten together like that. I got to see some people who I have not seen in years, even though most of us live like less than an hour away from each other. And then um, on Christmas, my husband and I hosted a Christmas brunch for our normal crew of like more immediate family members, like aunts, uncles, siblings, like first cousins and their children. And we had like a really good time. We had good food, good drinks. My sister, of course, had games for us to play. So we were End up being straight up fools uh playing these games. <laughs> and we just enjoyed each other's company. And that's probably what I love most about my family is that we really like each other, we really get along. We don't have like those drama-filled gatherings y'all see on Instagram of like families fighting or arguing. Like that's not what we do. We just we still just have a good time overall. Like even when the drinking starts, no one's like drinking and like starting problems (laughs) so um i have to say i have really been enjoying this little school break all right so let's hop into the what's on my mind segment um i really wanted to put out an episode before the end of 22 like another one that was not related to the mini series but because I was doing the mini series. I kind of felt like I was missing things. I didn't want to put out something um, that was kind of late. But, you know, there was just so many things that was going on that I had, like, commentary in my mind on um, from, like, Herschel Walker. And I am still, like, I can't believe he was even an option. Like, let's just put it that way. Um, to the white teacher who told his black students that he thinks white people are superior and even the Meg, the Stallion, and Tori Lane's um, trial, I didn't even know people thought she was lying until the trial began. <laughs> like, y'all, well, uh, you know, anyway, I'm not gonna like, speculate why y'all thought she was lying, but I guess it's because I have worked for a domestic violence organization for the last seven years. I just automatically believed her. Like, there was nothing in my mind that was like, mm, is she lying? Because <laughs> like, why would someone lie about who shot them? Anyway, um, and I'm not even a Meg The Stallion fan because I don't listen to her music, but I've always had, like, a level of respect for her. I'm pretty sure um, it's because, like, her determination to get her degree, even while being, like, this music star making millions and you know being super famous. I really admired the fact that she had that in her mind. Like that was a goal she set for herself and she completed it through everything else. But what really just solidified for me the fact that she was telling the truth, like I didn't question it, but like this right here is like it was like a moment I was like, mm, there like there's no way that this is a lie. Um is the fact that she didn't go to the police and tell On Tori in an effort to protect him. I believe that this is one of the most under acknowledged reasons that women, specifically black women, have a higher mortality rate in domestic violence. Black women are three times more likely to be killed by their partners than white women. And there are a lot of reasons out there. I was reading something a while ago about, um, I believe it's like unemployment is a reason. And because like, um, while white men who are unemployed and black men who are unemployed are statistically just as likely to like kill their partners um, in a domestic violence episode... But black men have a higher unemployment rate or something like that. So that is why like our statistics are black women's statistics are higher as far as being killed. Um, But I truly believe um, it's because black women feel a sense of responsibility to protect black men with the way Black men are killed by the police or, you know, over police or, you know, have, like, horrible outcomes in the criminal justice system, I can't say that I blame them. Um, And you have to think about the time period that this happened. And I actually didn't know this until I started recording. I was thinking about recording this episode, and I looked it up because I haven't really been following along. I didn't know that this happened so long ago. But it happened in, like... Meg was shot in July 2020. So just think about the time that this happened. There were still a lot of riots and, um, not riots, but protests and marches and maybe some riots, you know. But people were still kind of reeling over George Floyd. You know, we had, you know, just a higher alert about what could possibly happen to black men when they encounter police. And so if Meg the Stallion calls and says, hey, this black guy with a gun just shot me, I'm sure she was afraid that if that happened, the police would come guns blazing, ready to take him down for anything. Um, so I just thought about that. And also that she's very young. Well, she's still young according to me but she's like in her 20s right so at that time I'm sure she was like either early or mid-20s um a black woman a celebrity like she doesn't want to be associated with having another black man killed by the police like you know I don't know if that was going through her mind at the time of course but to me it just makes sense that she was like no I'm not gonna call because he doesn't need to die (laughs) Like, I prefer him, maybe she wanted him to go to jail, but she don't want him to die. And at that time, in July 2020, the fear of black men being killed, I mean, was like tangible in the air. So, I get it. Um, but it does kind of pain me, I have to say, that a lot of black women protect black men in this way. Because they're putting their own lives at greater risk to protect a person who isn't protecting them so when I saw that Meg you know had opted not to go to police to the police and press charges no one could convince me that Tori was innocent (laughs) let's see and you know also so now that I am like aware of the trial and all this stuff you know because I see it on Instagram I see celebrities posting about it, like journalists I see the shade room posting about it and you read these comments and I I like to read comments I think they're interesting for the most part sometimes they're funny but when I read I didn't expect these comments to be like oh Meg is lying that really blew my mind um that people really didn't believe her over him when she is the victim in this um and you know i saw i think it was josea sanchez the guy from the game um but he had wrote this post and he talked about how there's been all these calls to protect black women believe black women over the last several years and yet we still have a long way to go because no one's believing megan um And I just didn't understand why Megan doesn't get some of that same energy that we love to say all these believe black women, protect black women. Like we say this, but then what is it about her that doesn't deserve the same respect and the same protection? Because I saw a lot of victim blaming and trying to find some behavior from Megan that like could justify her being shot. Like, what is that? Like, some kind of internalized misogyny on our part? Like, do people really think that this man could not shoot this woman? Like, I really don't know the ins and outs. I don't even know who Tory Lanes is. Like, I don't know if he's a rapper, he's a singer. I know he's in the music industry for some reason, but I can't tell you a song. So, like, but what is it about him that makes him more believable than her? Like, that's what I don't know. Um, So, all that victim blaming just really kind of threw me for a loop. Because do y'all think she deserves to be shot because she was drunk at a party? (laughs) Like, and it brought me back to, like, what I actually do for a living. And it made me think about why so many victims of domestic violence don't come forward to the police or don't tell their family members or their friends. Because y'all not gonna believe them anyway. So why risk being vulnerable asking for help when y'all just not gonna accept the fact that this person's being harmed or try to find something that she did to provoke the abuse? Like it doesn't make sense for me to if this was me in the situation, I probably would also be hesitant. Now, luckily I have like good friends and families who will believe me, but I don't know. That just kind of blew my mind. And I recognize that I'm being like very heteronormative here with the terms of, you know, she and he talking about the female being the abuser and the male. I mean, the female being the abused and the male being the abuser. But I'm using these terms when talking specifically about Megan and Tori. But please be aware that anyone of any gender can be abusive in all types of relationships can experience abuse so um I just wanted to put that out there because that was something that was on my mind I guess heavier than I really thought about it um yeah so prayers up for Matt the Stallion um another person who has caught my attention again is I don't even want to say it <laughs> It's Kanye West and I'm not going to discuss him anymore on my podcast because it's a lot for me and if you saw my Instagram post you saw how I how I'm like rethinking everything I ever said about Kanye I've been listening to some interviews and reading up on him but what really kind of struck me in everything that I've been kind of reading and listening to is this concepts of internalized racism and internalized white supremacy um and people of you know all races can deal with these and i want to define these concepts for y'all a bit because in my in my effort to kind of like process my thoughts i have been doing i you know i'm a kind of a nerd sometimes i'm like literally reading like academic articles about these things but um Just kind of trying to figure out, like, what is it? And I don't know if I have all the answers, but I'm going to try to, like, walk y'all through some of my thoughts and even share some things from the articles that I read. So, internalized racism happens when a person takes in and believes racist stereotypes and beliefs and has negative attitudes towards their own racial group. So that would be a black person. Me, for example, I would believe that black people are lazy. I would believe that black people um, eat watermelon. Like whatever the racist stereotypes and beliefs, I believe that we're, you know, black people are dumb or lack intelligence. That's what I mean. Or like not as pretty as white people. That's what I mean by internalized racism. When you take in those negative attitudes, negative beliefs and stereotypes, Um, towards your own racial groups and it kind of affects how you intrinsically value yourself right so internalized racism is considered the most psychologically damaging effect of racism because of how it affects one's view of themselves their abilities and their worth their intelligence their beauty and overall place in society it not only affects how they see themselves but others who look like them. So it wouldn't just be, oh, I think I, as a black woman, I am less intelligent. I would think all black women are less intelligent. I would think that all black people are lazy. And I would be on that thing of, we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps because that's what the white people did and that's what we need to do. You know, that would be, (laughs) that would be kind of, and I know I'm making a lot of this, but I can't help it because it's just so deep to me. Um, and people who have internalized racism believe that white people are inherently superior. And many will do anything they can to be in close proximity to whiteness. So like white adjacent. There was this video going around of Gabrielle Union discussing how she used to tuck in her lips to make them look thinner in an effort to appear less black. Now, people were kind of picking at her because clearly everyone can see that she's black, but what I and I didn't see the whole interview, so I'm I'm not speaking for her, but this is what I interpreted that to mean is that she was trying to have a closer proximity to the white beauty standards that are celebrated, especially in the Hollywood, right? She felt like she may have had to live up to those beauty standards to get, you know, certain roles or, you know, be, you know, accepted into that world she was in or is in. Which is really wild to me because ever since I saw Gabrielle Union, I really thought she was the most beautiful actress. Like I still think that. Um, And I always loved the fact that she played like an educated black woman instead of like just any kind of like ratchet or ghetto. Like she didn't let herself be put into certain roles that would give off like those stereotypical black women um, characters. So in my mind like it doesn't get any better than Gabrielle Union so for me to so for her to feel that way and also like grow to the point where she was willing to share that about what she was doing to kind of make herself um white adjacent that was vulnerable of her and I applaud her because I think you know I'm sure she's not the only person who does things like that I think about black actresses who get like their nose done to be you know less rounded and maybe more straight like whatever they do it could be because they're feeling like they the pressure to kind of fit in and be right adjacent am I saying that that's internalized racism um I guess in a way I am because she didn't feel good enough the way she was um but I do think She has had a lot of growth. After reading her book recently, I actually understand where she's coming from even better. I read the book after the clips came out. So this kind of like brought things in perspective for me. But she grew up in a town where she was pretty much one of very few Black people in her school. Um, Her family was like maybe... The only black family on her block, I believe. So, like, all the people she hung around at school were white and she never felt, you know, pretty or like people would accept her as someone who's beautiful because of her race. Um, So, you know, if you grow up in that way, then you get into an industry that's dominated by, you know, white beauty standards. I mean, she really did have a break, you know, between... What she was doing, like where she was at, who she was around. So I could definitely see how that could, you know, kind of play some, play some psychologically damaging, have some psychologically damaging effects on her um, and make her want to fit in. But anyway, this brings me to the next concept of internalized white supremacy. And how it is taught to us in school, right? From a very young age. Internalized white supremacy happens as people start to accept and believe that white people are morally and intellectually superior. Which leads some to believe that other characteristics of white culture is superior as well. So things like what it means to be professional, um, striving for perfection as defined by white culture, belief that in order for something to be considered um, legitimate, it should be written in books or articles, even um, this, this power of the written word um, kind of takes away the power of storytelling, which is prominent in like black cultures and indigenous cultures, right? But also the power given to written word makes it hard to challenge it, Challenge the narratives written in books, right? Like if it's written down, we kind of accept it as fact, even if it's not fact. <laughs> um, so think about this applies to like religious texts, like the Bible, right? Like people literally believe everything written in the Bible. I used to, I no longer do. And that's just part of like, my journey and I'm not here to tell anybody what to believe, but like I and I talked about this in the previous episode, the Bible is written by other people. So of course they can take some liberties and exaggerate or add some things or leave some things out as they want to, right? But then there are other spiritual practices that have no written test text like hoodoo voodoo and other tra- African traditional religions. And because these practices are based on oral history, they're either passed down or sought after by people who are interested. There aren't any sacred books. So it's easy for us, especially in Western society, to delegitimize it and demonize the practices and write them off as something that isn't real or isn't factual or doesn't, you know, you know, shouldn't be in practice. Um, and it's not just spiritual text. Of course, it is the laws that we abide by. I'm talking about it's even emails. I know I have sent several emails just to cover my butt and prove and have proof that a conversation happened or something was sent, or you know, so. Even the fact that people do that. I know people do that. I do it and I'm sure I got it because somebody told me to do it. Like keep a paper trail. Because we believe that written word is the law, right? Um, But it's much, much deeper than just the Bible. Just laws and definitely deeper than emails. It is about school. The textbooks that are written for schools, the books that are chosen for people to read in school are primarily written by white men and considered the gold standard of knowledge. Um, There's this intelligent woman, I I guess I call her academic, I'm not sure of her. Her full-time job, but she does write academic articles. Um, her name is Gloria Latson Billings, and she is a thought leader of critical race theory. And I suggest y'all really read some of her articles because she often discusses critical race theory and the issues of like racism in school. Um, but I read this article titled It Really Was My Fault Examining White Supremacy and Internalized Racism. Through Detained U.S. Black Youth's Narratives and Counter-Narratives. It was written by Desiree Talenta, Stephanie Ann Shelton, and Sarah McDaniel. And I just want to read what they say to y'all about white supremacy in school systems because I found it to be eye-opening. Okay, so this is like an excerpt. From that, so this is not Gloria Lass and villains. I brought her up because it does discuss like some critical race theory concepts, um, and she is quoted within this excerpt. Okay, so in talking about um, white supremacy, this is what the article says: White supremacy is embedded throughout the U.S. educational system, as demonstrated through curricula that centers white perspectives and histories through the embodiment of whiteness in school leadership, through the disciplinary practices that we discussed earlier in the article. Sorry, I'm just reading directly from here. Um, but the disciplinary actions which disproportionately target white, non-white students and through the school to prison pipeline that funnels substantial portions of black students into prisons, jails, and juvenile detention facilities. The pervasiveness of white history, white authority, and white power creates a white supremacist master script. Master scripting silences multiple voices and perspectives, primarily legitimizing dominant white upper class male voicings as the standard knowledge students need to know. All other accounts and perspectives are omitted from the master script unless they can be disempowered through misrepresentation. Thus, content that does not reflect the dominant voice must be brought under control, mastered, and reshaped. The result of white supremacist master scripting is that the predominantly white people shaping the educational system the work of erasing any counter narratives or perspectives that might challenge the status quo the scripts establish dominant narratives that sorry the scripts establish dominant narratives with reality creating potential that have normative implications for how people experience and describe race and racialized schooling youth such as these participants who were in the study they were doing. Um, youth learn and internalize these scripts, and through years of education and inculcation, inevitably adopt them as their own. Um, anyway, schools, <laughs> through many of their employees and students, perpetuate and enforce a white supremacist nexus, to which these youth were legally obligated to subject themselves. Dubraw noted that the psychological warfare that crushes the black spirit. Perhaps one of the most nefarious effects of the psychic war on blackness is that it plants seeds of self-condemnation that render black youth hesitant or unable to name racism and to condemn the white people who participate in their oppression, including teachers, administrators, and other youth. Dubois lamented measuring one's soul by the tape of of a world that looks on and amused contempt and pity. That measuring tape wraps black youth in an impossible bind that leaves them aware of how whiteness is constantly privileged without providing means of critiquing and overturning the system. These youth's narratives remind us of the degrees to which white supremacy shapes not only self-contempt and social inequities, but freedom for both mind and body. Now, am I, by- that's the end of the, <laughs> that's the end of the, and there's some things I wanted to point out because the reason I read this because I felt like it was just, I couldn't have said it better, right? Um, But I wanted to go back to the um, part where they talk about how if the content does not reflect the dominant voice, it must be brought under control, mastered, and reshaped. Um, The result of this master scripting is that white people shaping the educational system Do the work of erasing any counter-narratives or perspectives. That is the fight that people keep saying is, um, you know, people try to teach critical race theory. That's how you have all those people who are challenging, like, what books can be in libraries, which is crazy to me, especially at schools, because your child don't have to check out those books. If your child checks out a book you don't want them to read, Tell them not to read it, but you were able to go to the school board meetings and say this book, this book, this book should not be in the school library. And a lot of these school boards are listening because the system is set up that way. And think about who's able to go to these school board meetings. I'm not saying that all people can't go, but it's typically white women who are able to go to these school board meetings because guess what? They're happening when a lot of us are at work. And we can't make it to the school board meetings. And it's like, am I going to take off from work to make a school board meeting about books? No. Uh, But some people do, and I really appreciate those who are able to step up and do that. But it's like, this is part of the system, right? But they're controlling. Now, mind you, the history books already tell you this great revisionist history of, like, the United States and how we overcame and, you know... How we're not a racist country. <laughs> um, but then you have the ability to also challenge which books are in your students' library, and then people are like complaining about what's being taught to your kids. Like you don't want your kids to learn the truth. Anyway, and then the other part I wanted to bring up was it says youth internalize these white supremacist master scripts. And through years of education, they adopt them as their own. And I really believe, you know, that's what happens a lot of times because, you know, they talk about indoctrination all the time. Yeah, schools do indoctrinate students a lot, um, but they're indoctrinating them with these white supremacist ideals and white supremacist master scripting, as they call it in this article. Now, am I, you know, buying into the white supremacy culture by literally reading an article to y'all? Do I think that things are true simply because they're written in an academic journal? Absolutely not. You have to be a critical thinker. But I am reading this to y'all because it confirmed some of my own thoughts while also providing some new insight to how deeply white supremacy is rooted in North American culture. I read this also because, you know, it may help someone who doesn't quite grasp why there are people of color, black people, indigenous people who have internalized racism and internalized white supremacy. It's also not difficult to see why some white people think they are superior. We have all been taught this from a young age. Now, this isn't an excuse for continued racist behavior, of course not, because when you know better, it's your responsibility to do better. But when you see some prominent figures, and I'm not going to say their names, um, who you believe have internalized racism, internalized white supremacy, know that they will have to first recognize it themselves and recognize it as harmful to themselves and others before they can actually heal. Which brings me to another article I read titled The The Trajectory of Awareness, a Tool to Dismantle Anti-Black Racism in Social Work Education written by Latasha Smith and Carolyn Mack. This article laid a framework that these authors created to help social workers and aspiring social workers recognize internalized racism within their clients and themselves. And the article was really fascinating um, because they pointed out a lot of the mental health concerns, such as depression, anxiety, even isolation and so on could be the result of internalized racism, which is also a tool of oppression and is also a manifestation of systemic racism. So just like race, internalized race is intentionally socially constructed. And I wanna have just a quick aside about social constructs because I've had a few conversations about social construction lately and whether or not socially constructed concepts, things, ideas are real. And I feel the need to say that just because something is socially constructed does not make it fake. Yes, at its conception, it was made up like most things. Um, But the fact that people buy into these ideas and they agree that these things are real or these things will in fact work the way that they say is going to work, make it real. Um, The best example of a social construct that I can think of is money. Money didn't always exist. And there are differences between, you know, money and currency. So I want to be clear. But either way is socially constructed. It was socially constructed as an easier, more efficient way to purchase goods. Although most of us keep our money in the bank and rarely... Have actual currency or cash on hand, we recognize the fact that we need money to survive in this society. So even though money is socially constructed, it is real. And not having it or not having enough of it has very real consequences, right? Like homelessness and food insecurity. The same is true with race. Race is made up of a is a made up concept that It's only real because enough people agree that it's real. So, and this is where I was talking about social construction with people, was regarding race. And just because you may know that race is fake and is made up, um, the fact that so many people buy into it, make it real, right? So, the social construction of race led to the social construction of racism, In fact, the reason race was created was to promote racism, which leads to white supremacy and leads to internalized racism and internalized white supremacy, which are all social constructs with very real outcomes, right? Like we have hate crimes, right? That's a very real outcome of racism. But we also have people who think less of themselves because of their race and that's damaging as well right so regardless of what you think about social constructs they're very real and very harmful in some cases so okay let's get back to what I was saying so I was talking about internalized racism. Okay, so when you are being constantly taught implicitly and explicitly that the white culture is dominant, better, and ideal during your formative years by a school system that didn't even want you there, right? Like they were not all gung-ho on integration you better believe that what is being taught is intentionally idolizing white culture and maintaining the status quo, maintaining the very tenets the country was founded on. So when you recognize internalized racism or white supremacy in a person, just know that the system is working as designed. Um... So, yeah, I know we have a lot of people say like, you know, this is the system is made this way as working gets designed. The school is part of that system. Um, It's not all politics and laws and the school is part of the system. The school is part of the institution that helps maintain the status quo in this country. Um, so let's close out in, first of all, I really recommend reading the two articles that I mentioned and also reading any of Gloria Lassen Billings' work, um, about CRT. She really, like, she really helps put CRT into perspective for all the people who don't understand it or believe it's a way to make, for people who don't understand it or believe it's a way to make white students feel guilty about being white. Read some of her work. Of course, read Kimberly Crenshaw's work. Um, look up Derek Bell, look up, mm, I can't think of his first name, but Delgado, look up Delgado CRT and it'll pull up the guy. These are all like the thought leaders on CRT. Um, these are all people who help shape CRT. Um, but the two articles, please read those. Okay. So let me get back to what I was trying to say. The article by um, Talent Shelton and McDaniel, um, the one about Black youth in U.S. detention facilities, um, is a great article if you're interested in how racism plays out as a part of school discipline, um, especially with Black youth. And then the article about the trajectory of awareness model by Smith, Smith and Mac is for anyone interested in exploring how internalized racism could be taught in schools of social work to better prep um, students to work with diverse populations who experience racism. Um, that article, I am, I would love to see, because in that article, she, well, one of the ladies, I think it was, um. Smith, the author Smith, like ran like a course that taught the trajectory of awareness and it talked about internalized racism and it kind of gave them the tools to identify that within their clients instead of what she was saying in the article, articles, like instead of thinking like their depression comes from within them, what, so it's in, like something internal, what externally could be promoting the depression and anxiety and could it be related to race and in the article if you read it she also has like these um tables that list like different questions you can ask your clients or even yourself um to identify internalized racism and I really think it was some really thoughtful questions that you could just reflect on to see how internalized racism racism could be affecting you Where you are on the trajectory of awareness, like either you are you have emerging awareness, or let me go back to it, or reckoning with awareness. So, emerging or developing awareness is when you um move to some knowledge about how internalized racial oppression affects you and what you've internalized. Um, and it, it kind of helps you put into language what you've been going through and maybe start describing your experiences. And then the reckoning with awareness stage is the second stage, which emphasizes the understanding that has been done with the awareness t- obtained and how people have responded. It involves individuals beginning to develop some capacity for self-reflection and trying to make sense of and articulate your experiences further, as well as the beliefs and actions that result in taking in the negative racialized messages. Um, It talks about like just the emotions people go through when they start to reckon with awareness that they have internalized racism. Um, Just check those out. Those are really good. All right, guys think that's all about those articles okay good people that is all I have for y'all today I hope I gave y'all some food for thought truly I do um please please remember to subscribe to the aspire social worker podcast if you're on apple rate and review and follow me on social media at aspiring black social worker And if you have anything to add to the conversation, you can always send me an email at aspiringblacksocialworker at gmail.com. Until next time, peace.